The Money Show. Other people's money. Stephen Foncola, Chief Executive at EOH. You had a perfectly good job in banking, Stephen Foncola. There you were, Chief Executive of Absa Corporate and Investment Bank. And either you make a call one day to somebody saying, I feel like a change, or somebody makes a call to you says, do you feel like a change? We've got a challenge, and you accept, regardless of how that happened, and you accepted, and then you took over EOH. And when you got there, it was like the same people arriving at SARS or Transnet. Things were just a lot more broken than they appeared from the outside. It's been a hell of a run for the last three years, Stephen. It has, Bruce. It's been been incredibly difficult, but... uh, Fortunately, I was lucky enough to get a very good team around me. It was quite interesting how many people wanted to come and help. And uh, I I think that's really made a difference, to be quite frank. And uh, we went back to first principles and uh, managed the whole business out of the bank account. Because as as I've said to you before, profit is vanity and um, cash is reality. And we... um, you know, that's how we've survived, I think, at the end of the day. I mean, you said lots of people wanted to come and help. What is their motivation? I mean, was it the fact that you'd gone there, you lead with credibility? Um, what made people want to do the job? Were you paying above average salaries? Were you making work uh, longer hours? I mean, what was the motivation for people to go in and do something incredibly difficult? And, not, and by no yeah, means guaranteed so- either. Yeah, I don't know, Bruce. It's quite interesting. You should ask some of them. I mean, I, I would like to believe that they saw that uh, there was, you know, opportunity to really start from scratch, turn things around, you know, put their own brand on things. And, you know, I hope that uh, they thought that it was possible because I was there and they wanted to come and join me. Um, but it was, it, was, it was very interesting. I mean, I've got probably the best team I've ever had right now running quite a small business actually relative to an MTN or a ABSA or a Deutsche Bank but they've been incredible and um, it's uh, you know f- frankly it's the only way we've managed to survive is that we just had a lot of good people doing their stuff and uh, being able to pull it off and it means you know you can focus on different things because you can sit down have a strategy meeting and you divide it up among six people and they all go and do their things. And then you come back a week later and you talk about it. And But you know they're going to do their bit so you can go and do your bit. And uh, that's really made the difference. But uh, it's been, listen, it's been very exciting. It's been a massive learning curve for me coming out of big business, seeing uh, the other side, I suppose, of the coin. And um, I can only be thankful we've got to where we've got to in such a short time because it's been pretty tough, you know, with that crisis and then straight into COVID <laughs> straight afterwards. Uh, it was pretty hectic. But I mean, that's the essence of leadership, isn't it? It's getting the the right people around the table. And Michael Jordan usually says, you know, always make sure that you hire people smarter than yourself, or at least in what they do. Um, and then to to keep tabs and to trust that people are going to do what they are paid to do, what they say they're going to do. And each week, making sure that they're delivering what they said they'd do last week. And that's how you incrementally improve outcomes. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche around hiring people better than you. But, you know, when you're in crisis, you tend to do things better and faster because you're forced to, in a way. And I always say, you know, when I look back at the turnarounds that I've done before, there was always some 
you know, when you look back after three years, you regret that you didn't replace this person faster or you didn't do this thing faster. But, you know, in our situation, it was almost life and death. And I suppose in life and death situations, you do make uh, faster decisions, but you also make bigger decisions because you have to and people tend to accept them. And I think, you know, one thing that I was lucky with as well, it was a few things that helped me. But I also, you know, I've been through two crises before, one at ABSA in 2008. And um, what I've seen is that uh, leaders that fail tend to want to do everything themselves. They, they pull everything in and they want to go and sort it out. And you fail because you can't do it on your own. And it was the one learning that I had from before that I just knew if I'm going to try and do this on my own, I'm definitely going to fail. And so I sought out people like Martin Kingston, um, you know, went to Edward um, um, Nathan uh, to see who I could get. And I got the boss there, which was very helpful. Michael Katz, very capable guy. And then I started bringing people in and uh, managed to get a very good board around me. And then we were doing things together and debating these things. And, you know, you, you get decent answers out. You don't get it right every time. But if you, if, you, if you sit and listen and ask, and you tend to get better decisions. And I think in hindsight, that was exactly the right thing to do. Uh, and, and, I mean, you're dealing here truly with other people's money. Um, you know, investors, I think, had lost hope in the fact that EOH could be turned around. Um, and uh, you are hired on behalf of shareholders to fix a, a business that by now, had things continued the way they were, would probably be out of business. Is that fair? I think that is fair. I mean, but to be fair to the shareholders, I did get quite a few phone calls from the shareholders. If you remember on that fateful day of the, I think, 10th of February 2019, when we got that phone call to say, you know, um, Microsoft are pulling their relationship because of X, Y, and Z. Um, I did get a call from the large shareholders to say, are you staying or are you leaving? And, uh, you know, it was sort of, well, you, you decide. But I can't stay if everyone else is staying. That created this mess. So if you're happy to support me, I'll have a crack at it. I can't promise you anything. And so that's how it played out. And, um, you know, and uh, the rest, I suppose, a little bit of history. But uh, I did need to get some very good people on board who uh, you know, hopefully have made very good careers for themselves now because they are highly competent people. What interests me uh, about people like you, who have choice, you can you could do almost any job that came your way. Uh, you probably, I mean, forgive me for making it a big assumption, you didn't need to go and get another job. You could have, had you wanted to go and you know, got some you know, nice seats on boards and things, maybe done some private equity like lots of people do. Um, you could have done your own thing. Um, but you chose to go into a very public um, job and a high-risk job from a, a personal reputation perspective. Why did you choose that option? It's quite interesting. It's, uh, there were sort of two things that when I look back, one is when, when I took the job, obviously I didn't know that there was such an extent of bribery and corruption. I knew it had been a lot of businesses pulled together. I knew they needed a strategy. They needed to be simplified, needed to be consolidated. And I thought, you know, that's fairly 101-ish. Um, and it's just a bit, you know, matter of execution. And I can go and do that. 
But I went because I was really at that stage, you're exactly right, uh, I was getting paid extremely well at MTN. Um, the strategy changed and that didn't resonate with me in terms of what I'd gone for, what uh, Petuma had hired me there. So I chose to leave because the strategy was different from one mm. why I'd gone there. And um, when the EOH job came up, they had a great uh, youth development program. They had massive success in making unemployed people employable. They had something like, I'll get the number slightly wrong, but something like an 87% hit rate that had gone through their program. And I thought, well, this will be really cool. My last sort of hurrah as a businessman, I can actually sit and create jobs within the fourth industrial revolution in South Africa and be part of the turnaround. But the most interesting thing when I look back is because I took such a big salary cut from going from MTN to EOH, it wasn't for the money. So when all mm. this nonsense started, it wasn't about the money. It was about saving the jobs and you know sorting the business out. And so you make different decisions, I think, when you're not worried about, you know, how much you're going to get paid or not going to get paid. I mean, it's been, if you look at the money side, it's been massively detrimental to me. But if you have a look at the, uh, um, what I've learned and self uh, uh, um, pride, I suppose it's been, uh, it's, it's been huge. I mean, to actually get through this, you get these chances one in a lifetime and you know, it's, uh, we've managed to do pretty well. So it's been, it's been fascinating. I mean, does this still remain the last hurrah? Do you still see this as your final executive job? Because I would imagine that based on the experience that you've gleaned over the last three years, that makes you an incredibly, an even more marketable commodity to go into businesses with with deep challenges. You might not have the energy or the, or the, or, or the appetite for it, but uh, certainly you've developed a set of skills. You're a bit like Liam Neeson in, uh, what is the movie, Missing or whatever it is. You have a rare set of skills, you know how to use them. Um, and people who cross you get into all kinds of trouble. Um, you know, that's valuable, isn't it? No, absolutely. I mean, if the CEO of the Money Show is coming up, I might consider it. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Because uh, that Steady. would be fun. <laughs> but no, I mean, honestly, it, it, it all depends what comes up. I mean, you know, what, what you are always looking for is you're looking for a challenge. You're looking for learn to, to learn. I've never been good at just uh, being the caretaker. That's never been my game. And so, you know, f whatever happens, happens. There's still some things to do here. I always came for five years. I'm only three years in, so there's still, you know, lots to do. And also, you know, COVID has really changed the IT market or the ICT market. And I think there's a lot of consolidation to happen. There's a lot of opportunity. Uh, businesses are starting to accelerate their digital journey. And that's actually quite exciting. So we'll see how it changes um, now. You know, I've, I've got some really good people who have been in the industry for a long time, you know, whether it's Brian Harding, whether it's uh, Tsepa Ramatering, whether it's uh, um, Ziad who's come from uh, uh, Suleiman who's come from IBM. You know, we've got some really good RT RCT people that I really do think we can have a crack at getting our market share back and actually making this business as good as it was before, you know. Um, so um, there's something to focus on for sure. And you've got a big family. I mean, you know, so you need to keep the job because you've got kids to put through university <laughs> and all sorts of things. I mean, there's uh, there's a long pipeline of need in the Vancola household. 
No, there is. I mean, fortunately, um, I've got two nearly off the um, balance sheet, um, uh, both off to Europe to go and be au pairs. One's just finishing her internship uh, at a hospital uh, down in uh, KZN. Uh, the other one's just finishing off her BCom, but she's then off to Europe. So uh, hopefully um, that's a third of my of my uh, <laughs> liability gone for a while. Um, so yes, uh, I do, and I, I do. But uh, um, um, I enjoy working. You know, I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy working with people, and uh, so uh, hopefully there'll be more challenges to come. You're such a banker. I mean, you're referring to your children as liabilities. I'm sure they appreciate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what has been the smartest money decision you've ever made? I mean, the move to EOH wasn't great from a personal financial point of view. There was a salary cut involved. But yes, incredibly fulfilling after a long and successful career in banking and then a brief time at MTN. What has been the best financial decision you ever made? So um, the best financial decision I ever made, I didn't make it myself, uh, which is quite interesting. And that was when I left Deutsche Bank to join ABSA. And uh, Deutsche Bank had managed to get our share options externalized. You know, so that was a big thing in those days is you had money offshore. You felt like you were some kind of mogul, I suppose, because your shares were now allowed by the Reserve Bank to be kept offshore. And I'll get the numbers also slightly wrong, but I think the Deutsche share price was around 90 euros at that time. And I had tried to negotiate to swap them into Barclays shares at about 30 euros, you know, as part of the takeover. And um, th thank you. Um, thankfully, Steve Boyson was quite a patriot. And he said to me, if you're going to join ABSA, you need to take ABSA shares, not Barclays shares. And uh, the one thing that's also interesting is that I never, ever bank share options or shares until the money's in my account. So it didn't really make a difference to me whether they were in euros or whether they were in rands. But the long and the short of it is I swapped my Deutsche shares at 94 euros for ABSA shares at, I think, about 84 rand. And then we had the 2008 crash. Um, the Barclays shares were 30 euros. They went to 50 cents. And Absa shares went from 80 rand to 134 rand. So that's, yeah. um, if I look back, that's probably the best financial decision I ever made. But that was because Steve Boyson was a pat uh, patriot, not that I was clever. No, well, I mean, thank you, know, thank, thank you, Steve, very much for that. The phone callers will be ever, forever <laughs> grateful. You then went, you, and I forget the level, was it 15 Rand where you bought some EOH shares? You, I think, the, did the blood run to your head and you got the sense that, yes, we're turning around and the share price just kept on falling and falling and falling and falling. Would that go amongst the, 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 the less good financial decisions that you've made over time? Yeah, it was around 28 Rand. And part of the, oh. part of the joining was um, that the money that um, the founder uh, had bought me out of my MTN bonus was to buy shares in EOH. So I sort of committed that mm. stupidly before I'd really got my feet under the table. And that was, I suppose, just naive trust in the whole thing. So that was the worst decision I've ever made in my life, for sure. 
So you've got a strong incentive, therefore, to grow this business and to get the share price up, I suppose, over the next two years or so. Well, definitely, I uh, had to save it. I mean, it, was, it got down to, I think, just before COVID, it got down to 2 rand 30. Yeah. And it's up somewhere in the seven mid seven rands at the moment. So that's been a, you know, a really good turnaround and feeling very comfortable with that. And I think, you know, as we as we chip away at our problems now, we've done the 80-20 and um, we just need to get everyone to feel that the risk is out the business. And as they say, one swallow doesn't make a spring. We're going to need to get a few more swallows into our um, results. And, uh, you know, hopefully the next over the next two years, we'll get it 100% stabilized and, you know, people will like the industry and, you know, like our market share and our breadth of offering and we'll see that we do have a competitive advantage and, you know, start coming back. But that'll take some time for sure. People, as I say, you you take 10 years to build a reputation and a few seconds to destroy it. So we're trying to build again. Uh, Is it worth 21 rand a share over over the next two years, I wonder? Well, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the economy. It depends on you know how, how how much the the economy is growing and how much we're growing. Um, you know, because we we are large market market share in South Africa, we're very dependent on the GDP and the GDP growth. You know, the ICT market grows about two percent faster than GDP generally. Um, but if the GDP is naught or one, you know, then we're only growing at three percent. That's not very exciting, is it? Or three percent real? But that's not massively exciting. But if we see it come back and the global economy starts growing, uh, we will, you know, obviously grow faster. What I'm really excited about is some of our platform businesses, as you might have seen our results. We've got quite a yep. few of them. It's our own RP stuff, and then we've got a great business in Egypt, and we've got a small business in UK, and we'll have a look to try and okay. grow those a bit and um, you know hopefully we can we can beat expectations we must leave it there Stephen Foncola thank you for giving us your time on a public holiday Monday Chief Executive at EOH